Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, I think is the name of it, right? That's the name of it? Where we keep you updated with what's going on for Israel, where you can feel connected, all that good groovy stuff. I am here as always, almost always, I have to say now, with my co-host Alan Goldman. How's it going, Alan? Thank you. I think you can say always, even though once I was not able to be there in the Rova. I think it still gets an always, no? Fair enough. We'll round up. Well, I actually have something else to say because we are in uh, actually Cafit now, up the street from Bagel Cafe, because something rocked our world this year, this week, which is it seems that Bagel Cafe has changed management. No. Yes, it seems that way. Let's be honest. That's not the real reason. The real reason is because we have our third chair here who we haven't had in, in way too long. Really? The Zen guru of Israel articulation, Zeb Ben Shachar. How's it going, Zeb? Hello, hello. Zeb's a bit of a gourmand. He doesn't he doesn't like our low fare diet. He 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 always tries to bring us. To, I'm not such a talker. Not like you guys. It's true, but you like us to eat it like uh, fancier food. You like Zev has a more curious palate. I wanted you to taste the Sicilian pizza. It was pretty good. It was f- amazing. Yeah. At Cafe, it was like this big. Uh, we are, yeah. We, we had like two mains and shared the three of us, and we're pretty big eaters. We were full, but that Sicilian pizza had anchovies and and tomatoes and onions and wow, it was amazing. It was amazing. Yeah, you should listen to Louis C.K. talk about uh, the word amazing and how we reach right to the top shelf when we use words like amazing. We say amazing on a basket of chicken wings. What are you going to do with your life? What are you going to look forward to from now on? Are we literally amazed? That's a really good point. He can be a sharp observer. We also have a fourth chair who's somewhat reluctant but can join in at any time. Would you be willing to join in? My wife, Dara, who's joining us today at Kafit. How's it going, Dara? Very well, thank you. All right. Well, our topic today, actually, Dara, could include you. So we would love you to join in and stop us because we're three men who won't shut up unless you, and, and very often will talk over intelligent comments. I, I actually thought you were going to say three pseudo-intellectuals, and we need actually a real intellectual. Yeah. <laughs> More pseudo than intellectual, maybe. No, but it's like a guy thing. We like to talk and talk and talk, and then there's an intelligent comment, and they can't get a word in because we're idiots. But uh, really what I wanted to talk about was uh, the gap year itself, and where you know we've all been educating now for at least a few years in the gap year system and by the gap year system i mean jewish students after high school a year before they go to college to university taking a year of study in israel and we wanted to reflect about the gap year in general but also more particularly about israel education in that gap year experience and you know how how being in israel is itself an education is it enough of an education? And what, what do we think is, uh, is going on in the gap year system, our observations? I guess, I guess that's my opening question. How, how it's changed and where is it heading? Right. I will, I will zoom out for a second and just say that gap year is also not just in the Jewish world. There are gap year um, programs all over the world for all kinds of students. And uh, uh, Barack Obama's daughter... No, no, no. Tasha, Sasha, Malia. Whatever. I don't remember. But, 
but she brought a little bit of fame to it because she took a gap year. And uh, but in general, which is interesting, I think it does affect our conversation. Is that studies show generally for general gap year that a year before college brings a lot of maturity into the college year. That students mature an incredible amount in that year, and then are often much more focused and much more productive during their college years. I'm not trying to do a promo. I'm just trying to say that in general, it has an effect. Before we even get into the details of Jewish education and what we do and how and its function it serves in the Jewish world, um, and I will say, me personally, I I noticed that that there's an incredible difference between a um, gap year student in May of uh, in, in May as opposed to that same student a year earlier as a senior. Uh, in high school, the, the change is tremendous. But how do you know that wouldn't happen in university? Is that is that? Do you think it's a it's a it's a byproduct of just the independence of being so far away from home, or is it something about the gap year itself? Is it the lack of, of academic pressure? No, those those are separate points. I mean, I think that that year of growth, wherever you are, is a huge year of growth. Um, I don't know. Maybe if they'd stayed in high school another year, it wouldn't be. I don't know. Maybe you know, just getting out of high school. Or it could be the freshman year of college. You also mature, but that that goes on your uh, grade point average. But but studies do show that's the other point. Again, the studies do show that when they come to college after a gap year, they're more focused when they get to college or more. Again, because they're coming in as a sophomore, which you probably would so. But um, but gap years tend to be also cheaper than a year of college these days, even though they're quite pricey. Yeah. So you're pro. Oh, I would say I'm pro. I would say very much so. I think it's a, a tremendous opportunity. Did you do it again? Oh, I, I, well, I sort of had a, a rebellious youth. So I. So that's when you were a crack dealer? <laughs> sort of. I lived on uh, Union Square. I lived, lived on uh, 14th and Union, no, 16th and Union Square. I was uh, going a year in, in New York City. Any particular city? Oh, yeah, New York City. Yeah. As, uh, at the New School for Social Research, I did a year. It was kind of like being in a gap year. And then I took a year off, and I dropped out of college and, and worked for my dad for a while, and then came to Israel for a while, worked on a kibbutz, and then I went back and did three years at Clark University. So I kind of had a few transitional years, but they weren't gap year. There was, there were, there was gap year. You, you did have a gap year, but it wasn't a gap year program. Right. The, correct. I mean, it was sort of like that because the new school at that time was actually really like a one-year program in and of itself. Today it's a full undergraduate college year, uh, changed your life or those years transformed your life oh absolutely absolutely and, uh, more than any uh, college experience more than any high school experience uh, no I don't know it's hard to say more than I mean high schools have transformative yeah I mean you're starting when I, it, you go in high school at 14 or so and go out at 17 18 it's it's transformative so I don't know if that more than but it was certainly I could see certain definite things that started solidifying my identity as, a, as an adult and some of those things I still form well if nothing else that's a time in life where your identity is forming and so to do something outside the box and different has got to have major benefits uh, than just you know staying within a, a, a track stepping off a track is going to be able to help you and then, and then you have this question of well is, is our typical gap year study really outside of a track yeah. That's an interesting question, also. But it's, it's yeah, certainly. Why you say stepping out of a track? I, I don't know why you say stepping out of track. I think those years are formative identity years, even if you stay on a track. Look, they for sure are, but I'm just saying changing the. Look, when I was. Okay, so we're very, 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 very old. Yeah, I'm, a little, I'm a little bit older. So. Yeah, I'm 72, Alan's 75. Right, exactly. Uh, we're, we're both uh, around 50. So, so when I was in high school, I remember half my grade took a gap year in Israel and that was like shocking 
And today, in, certainly in Jewish day schools, they went to mostly a few, a few, a few went to yeshiva. Most went to BMT, and the girls mostly went to Machon Gold, and mostly. So, so it was a different world. Today, it's becoming much more uh, normal and expected for students to go. So, on the one hand, you are on a path, but you're away from home in a foreign country that speaks a different language. It's still, it's expanding your horizons. And I, I think it's hard to imagine that that's not beneficial in, in, in major ways. But Zev, what, you asked a question. I'm curious what you think. You've been teaching, I mean, well over a decade in gap year programs. What differences, what changes have you seen in the, in the way that the gap years are run, but more importantly, in the students? I don't have a long list. I have to uh, process it more. But I can tell you that it's becoming more and more challenging to engage the students to keep them interested certainly more of them are on uh, on their phones uh, during class uh, doing other things multitasking this is a multitasking uh, generation and it's becoming increasingly harder to to engage them to get them excited about things and I have to you know I have to put in more uh, short video clips and exercises and uh, a piece of music here and there um, because I want them to, you know, to uh, be excited. I want them to, to learn something. So, uh, you know, it's been 10 years. Certainly my class this year is way, way different than what I uh, used to teach 10 years ago. I mean, that, that distraction is part... Look, they have access to an amazing amount of information from the phones, which is a, which is a positive. What, what you yeah, I want to comment on that, because what I notice is, um, in my years of being involved in Gap Year, which is quite a while, is that, as we've established, we're old, um, is that they are also much, much more up on current events than they ever were. They're more connected with the world than they used to be, right? When it, was, when it used to be like, oh, okay, like... Uh, a gap, you know, program may get like a Jerusalem Post every day, one that they would like share around. Today, they're all, they're, you know, those who are interested are getting their current events updates by the minute on their phones and, and really staying connected in the world. What's happening both America, internationally, um, you know, England, uh, depending on where they're coming from, their countries are coming from. Plus, actually, what's going on in Israel, too, because now the, the resources of English for what's happening in Israel. Look, that, in, that in and of itself is also a double-edged sword because yeah. Because we used to, when we stepped into a gap year, we were stepping into another world with very little connection to the world we came from. Here, their whole world comes with them. So they're not really stepping into a new world as much as, you know, the the entertainment, the connectivity. And and actually, there's a a discussion that we've been having since cell phones came in and, and parents have now become into the gap year. Because, as you say, the connectivity goes. So now parents are intricately involved in their gap year experience. For the positives and negatives. When you say, well, the kids don't ever get away and experience on the, on the other hand, our parents had no idea what we were going through <laughs> when we were going through it. So their parents are actually experiencing it with them, and there's something actually very, very beautiful about that. And they're, they're excited when they're excited, and they hear all the great things, as opposed to the end of the year, they come home and they're like, how was your year? Oh, well, well you know, it was okay. Not much to share. Well, let me ask you guys a stupid question. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Now, I'm saying I think uh, it's a question for us as educators. Since more and more students are getting their education online, on their phones, on their computers, um, they're learning physics and math and Judaism online, uh, what's the role of the educator? 
if there is uh, if there is a necessity for that uh, for that role. Great, great, great question. I think uh, I think that well, first of all, we really see that 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 uh, the the teacher educator position really does need to adapt and to change and to evolve. One of the big places that we're evolving from is that the teacher is not the master of all information and is there to give over information and they're there to write it down and absorb that information and then take it out. Rather now, all the information is available um, at, the, at, the, at their fingertips, literally. Look, I, there's an author that I really like, Neil Postman, who in one of his books... I think the end of education suggested that every school in every city has a mission to take their students to every museum in that city over the course of four years of high school. And every time they leave a museum, they have the same assignment. How does this museum answer the question, what does it mean to be a human? Art museums, history museums, technology museums, science museums all answer the question, of what it means to be a human. So that's a very interesting thing, idea about curriculum in general and how schools should think of themselves. But that idea influenced me very much because it presented the teacher as a curator. Like Alan's saying, not as I am not the conduit of information. I am the guide. You can access information with me or without me. I am one of your guides in helping you think about how to, how to take all these little pieces and put them together into big pictures. And we'll, we'll discuss it. And you'll, you'll be forming how you put the pictures together. I'm sort of a guide that's helping you put together your, your deeper ideas and big picture. I think, I think that makes the teacher much more important than the transmitter of information, the conduit. They have other conduits. And that's... I, I, I don't think I don't think the teachers uh, I don't think teaching is going to be obsolete anytime soon. One hundred percent, and I think actually goes back exactly that. That okay, we can see that in in our field. I think we came into the school ten years ago or fifteen years ago, and they literally were really disconnected from the world. Here we were also someone who was like giving them what's going on in Israel, what's going on in this, and now it's not as much, and it's sort of. They're much more connected. And if we talk about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, they're reading a tremendous amount online from all kinds of sides of the, of the conflict. So they also want to know that. Like, okay. I've got to say, I've got to disagree with you guys on this to a certain extent. I, I find that students are coming, not all, but I would say probably, okay, I'm just from the top of my head guesstimating. I feel like most kids don't have a good handle on what's going on. What's the West Bank? They've heard the term. They know it's the fight, but they don't understand you know, annexed versus unannexed. They don't understand. They haven't really encountered the information in a meaningful way. They're aware of a lot of little factoids, but they have. I think they're coming to Israel without understanding what's going on in Israel, and I don't know that most of them, bless you, are processing that here in Israel. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing with you. I, I, I agree with. You. I think they have. There's a tremendous information out there, and then and they're accessing it more than they did in the past. Exactly what you're saying. But there is that need to bring it all together, give it context, help them understand it, see, see what it is, what does West Bank really mean. And they really are not doing it. Not only are they not doing it in, in, in their schools in America before they come, they're not doing it on their Israel programs when they come in high school at, or in middle school or wherever else. Wow. Hey, Dara, what'd you order? Did you ask me what I got? I got focaccia. Wow, it's gorgeous. But they have her. I think that's hold on somebody get a picture Alan take a picture that's going to be the picture of this podcast 
See, that's like a, a microcosm of a class that we teach. Go ahead. The focaccia. The focaccia. No, seriously, because they're, uh, they're listening to us speak and teach. And then all of a sudden they get this text message or this focaccia. And then they just can't stay focused. And they have to deal with this focaccia. Right? Us. Everyone. Yeah. And then you have to, you know, it takes you five, ten minutes to get back uh, on track. That's the problem with the uh, gap year education, the focaccia. <laughs> that's so true. It's all about the focaccia. I thought it was shawarma. <laughs> By the way, that's a real thing. We do it too. And we very often say, oh, these kids today. We do exactly the same thing. I was saying to, I was, I was teaching a group and there was a teacher's meeting. And I was saying, you know the teachers all have their phones out, right? <laughs> we sometimes say it as if, as if it's the technology that's changed and it's impacting this generation in ways that are hard for us to assess. But the technology tra- changes us also. We're not immune to these changes. And the biggest mistake, I think the biggest mistake schools are doing, we've had it every year now before in the beginning of the year to teachers meetings go from school to school because we teach in a lot of different schools and many of the schools have the same conversation. What are we doing about the phones this year? Oh my God, it's so bad. It's a, this and that. And it's time we we like we have to start dealing with it as, the, as a reality and not as a. What do you suggest doing about the cell phones? Because I I know those conversations. Do we allow them or don't we allow them? Do they put it in a basket in the beginning of the class or do they do we integrate it using cahoots and other uh, uh, surveys with uh, cell phones? I don't know if I would use I don't know if cahoots I think I think integrating I think for some I mean I do in a very informal way like if I if I don't know something of a question I'll ask a student to look it up or uh, you know on the phone or if it gets rampantly bad so I'll say something but let me ask the question a different way let me ask you and I agree with you I have that every beginning of the year everybody do you think teachers 20 years from now are going to have that question absolutely not why not because we're going to adapt we're adapting I think that this generation of young people are growing up digital natives, that this is their world. We're immigrants. So we look at this technology and say, oh, we shouldn't allow that into the classroom, or we should allow it into the classroom. It's foreign to us. This generation are going to grow up as it's just, it's just part of how you interact with the world. Like and they're going to. An extension of your body, the cell phone. An extension of your body, an extension of your brain, and it's an input output. And so they're going to know exactly how to use it in class in a perfectly normal way. And I think we shoot ourselves in the foot when we say, well, we have to tell them to put it away. We don't put it away at meetings. We, it's, it's, we're, we're, we integrate it as one of our, I don't know, it's not one of our senses or one of our brain, but it's a, it's a tool. It's, a, it's extremely, it's like a pencil and a piece of paper that we grew up with. Nobody would tell you to put that pencil and people pay people away, but you're doodling. Okay, but that's what I'm doing while I'm listening to what's going on. Socrates didn't write anything down. Because that destroyed the philosophical discourse. Plato wrote things down, and Socrates thought he was being a weirdo. Because it ruins the... And Aristotle catalogs everything. It's the same. Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi writes down the Mishnah. It's a scandal. It's a scandal. What are you doing? You're going to transform Jewish learning. It did transform Jewish learning. But to fight that transformation is less productive than figuring out how to maximize the positives and minimize the negatives. Because the transformation is going to happen. Will it or no? Already... Right? It's happening. Yeah. yeah. I would argue we're at the very, very early stages of a transformation that we ourselves don't understand. And we will probably, we should live till 120, we will probably go to our graves without really getting it. Any more than Gutenberg understand, understood the transformations that the printing press was going to make to Western civilization, I don't think we understand what this, these, this information age transformation is going to do to us. 
Uh, I think, Mike, you do. <laughs> but you're a tech out. You're supposed to know all these things. You're, you're a real native, even though you pretend to be a, a uh, immigrant. I'm a well-adapted immigrant. I, I, I'm a well-adapted immigrant. So what do you think it's going to look like 10 years from now? Uh, I think that, look, if we're going in the same direction that we're going, which who knows if we really are, um, I think it's going to be a lot more personalized education, right? More democratic, if you want to, so to speak. People are like, going to be more and more encouraged to learn what, it, what interests them, right? Uh, Thank you, right? You know, that's what's that that that's what that's where it really seems to be where you're going. And that's how you integrate all this all this technology too, because you can just instantly go from one thing to the other, right? In other words, you say to Mike you know, something you joke say, Michael, you know everything and you read so much, like we, we joke with him. But that's because as a very well adaptive immigrant, he bounces from page to page. He sees something, he reads it. Right? Oh, this interests me. It bounces to another page, correct? And that, that's, how, that's how people are learning today. And so... I believe we should be raising kids to be addicted to their own curiosity. The satisfaction of curiosity is an endless addiction because everything you find out leads you to more and more questions. And I think that as we go forward, information... Education will be more modular. You'll be able to pick this five-minute thing or that ten-minute thing, and you'll be able to put together your own pictures and uh, 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 bigger pictures from all these puzzle pieces that are going to be accessible. And it's the job of the, of the teacher, like I say. What's, uh, what's the use of a class? You have 30 people in a class, each with their own uh, interests, each with their own uh, characteristic addictions, and everyone's doing their own thing. We love learning. The three of us learn, love learning together because we have the same interests. So we get together, we learn together, we look up, we bring our information together, we collaborate. But we don't have all the same interests. So where our interests overlap, our interface is very fruitful. Where, that's the class. That's the class. That's the class. Nachon. Where our interests overlap, that's the class. Where we get together as interested people, and we talk about how we're putting it together. Because one thing for sure, I will be missing insights that you have. And so together, all of us together are much smarter than any of us individually. And a good educator guide will be able to, to, to guide Include it. And that's why I think Jerusalem U should be making these kinds of five, ten-minute educational movies. I think, that's the, I think that's the wave of the future of education, that we should be getting ahead of the curve and having these. And we'll have to update them and things like that. But I, I do think that's a, that's a very useful educational product to put out into the world, I think. Our courses, our discussions, our things should be modular pieces that students anywhere can access. That's, I think, that's getting ahead of the curve, I think. You sucked me in, but I don't. I don't see how that necessarily teaches someone to think critically. Just, they're just passively reading information or absorbing information. That's not necessarily going to teach them to critically analyze what they're looking at or reading. I think le- you're less asking a question than answering Zev's question. In other words, the teacher, as the docent, as the guide, gets together with the class, and together they analyze and they ask the sharp questions. I do think that some of these products aren't just information download. I do think if you watch some of these videos our son may ear watches you will see that he's the one who shows it to me I'm sure most millennials are watching these things you will see examples of critical thinking examples of stimulating questions for the viewer to answer don't think of it as 
a video is an information download. Think of it as the, the video itself can stimulate critical thinking if it asks the right questions. The question is where is the student then sharing their analysis, insight, questions. So th- for that, I think you still need the classroom. Right. right. I, would agree with, I would agree with all that. And I'm, I think just to make sort of push the point a little bit more is that don't look at the video as a passive thing I'm, I'm digesting. Right. See it as part of an active process of learning. Just like when you read a book. When you read a book, you shouldn't be passive either. You should have an active role in reading that book. So now- right. That's another way to ask the question. Can't I, can't I ask your question, Dara, about a book? I think to a certain extent, you look, a book, there's a difference between a book and a video. A video is, I'm, I'm essentially passive. The act of reading is a creative act. I'm engaging in the author. The author has put, has thought and put things on the paper, but those are just dark spots on white paper. As I read, my brain is processing that into words and language and sounds. Same thing with video, maybe just a little bit less active. I mean, you're still, your brain is still processing, and I think that's what we have to tap into. Your brain is processing, but an but a illiterate two-year-old can process that video if they can understand the vocabulary. An illiterate two-year-old cannot read a book. There are skills involved in reading that aren't just technical skills. They're mental skills. There's language processing that are, that are, that are part of a cognitive process. That's why I think literacy is indispensable. We're not just going to go to a pure... Audiovisual media. I hope, one hundred percent. And I'm saying, but and that's why a good video is not just integrating. You see it on things, not just thing. It's integrating words. It's writing. It's sketches. It's drawings. It's it's you know. I'm saying these 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 learning classes. Usually, the good ones are not just video. I mean, you know. they they do use words, but I would argue that those words are being used as part of a video presentation. It's not a paragraph on a piece of paper. I think there's I think there's the ability to read. Think in and write in paragraphs. Well, our teachers, I think, very often are given curriculum they have to teach. They didn't explain to us why they were relevant. The ability to write an essay is the ability to organize your ideas, explain to a listener what you're going to say, to say it, your thesis, to prove it through three examples, and then conclude it. That's a cognitive process, which is not, I don't think videos can teach you that. I think that's a li- in other words that's a cognitive process you can do orally also you don't just have to be able to write you, as a cognitive process I can learn to do orally I don't just need to write a paragraph I can make a speech orally without ever writing anything down right very few people can write well organized speeches without writing anything down uh, I mean because we're t- today we are engrossed in the written in the written period right 2000 years ago when everything was oral and learning was oral potentially different. I don't know. Well, I, I think when Homer wrote down the Iliad, it was controversial, right? But before Homer, they were walking around saying these things. But they weren't essays. It's interesting that as society becomes literate, you have the rise of rhetoric. In other words, when Cicero stood in, in, in Rome and gave us an organized speech, it was written. And I know that because we can read them now. There is something to the process of literacy itself, which 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 in and of itself is a form of Thinking. Critical analytical thinking, which cannot be replaced through visual media. It's not a substitute. These things should be enhancing each other, not replacing each other. That's what I'm arguing. Right. I mean, obviously, I mean, obviously, we agree. I wouldn't get rid of books. I mean, being a, especially doing Shavuot, say for a bookophile, right? But, um, uh, but th- maybe then that argues of maybe we're in a regressive state. 
not to go back to Postman, but that's another one of Postman's arguments in a different book, Amusing Ourselves to Death. He fears that by going from, a, and, and also his book, The Disappearance of Childhood, he has a whole thesis that we're, we're going back to a preliterate, we're, 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 we're unraveling a lot of the progress of the last 300 years of modernity. Which goes back to, to, to Zev's question of, of uh, Einstein's in the movie form, and at what age do you uh, introduce a child to that, <laughs> to the screen? The, ba- the baby Einstein you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, but what's the real reason you use baby Einstein with your kid? So that I can do other things. Yeah, you need five freaking seconds of quiet. I don't see why that's really such an issue. It's a, I don't think there's anything wrong with visual stimulation. It's just... No, but that's what I mean. In other words, we as, we as immigrants into the digital world have what to offer to the natives, even though we realize that we'll be replaced, but we think that the... We, it's our job to analyze, and this, this is true of our nationality, of our religion, of our culture in general. We have to analyze what we think are the core things that we want to live on and what's really the dispensable packaging that can, be, that can go away because they're not going to like that packaging. I don't think we've come up with a clear answer as to what's the role of the educator in a digital uh, world because apparently everything is online, critical thinking, uh, engaging material, um, visual stimulation. Um, what, you, know, you don't need the educator to be a facilitator. You can have a student facilitate uh, discussion, an educational discussion. And so I don't think we've solidified the role of the educator here. Maybe, maybe the, uh, it's dispensable. No, it's true you can have a student facilitate discussion, but there's going to be different processing when you have a person who's an expert in a field, let's say, and the student who's doing it. The, the processing that's happening of, of the information is going to be different. And if, if that's, well, that's what we mean by facilitator, someone who's helping students process the information they have. Let me play devil's advocate. So, so the equivalent of the educator can be Google. You, no, Google is not a cognitive process. It's a search process. It can't analyze. Okay. You ask, you turn to the educator. Okay, you turn to the educator for knowledge, for expertise. Everything today can be found independently online. You're saying that, that Google doesn't do the processing and that Google doesn't do the critical thinking as an expert, the human expert does. I say that one day that's going to happen too. Oh, you can have an artificial intelligence teacher one day, but that's a different technological question. Okay, but that's, that's far enough away that uh, now you're getting into the, uh, the vanishing point between... Well, yeah, it's rapidly approaching science fiction where the, where the singularity occurs and, and, and there's no difference between artificial intelligence and natural intelligence. Okay, and then at, at that point, do robots become essentially humans? There's still an, whether that, that's a separate question than do you still... Is it good to have a human guide? To guide you along, you know, to put it into the language I was not Jewish, but 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 you know, I- international Western civilization language. I think Plato had a really good idea writing those things down. But ultimately, I think you can't get past Socrates saying, "The two of us are going to have to sit down and have a discourse and an argument." And there's value in that conversation where we agree and disagree to reaching for truth that can't be replaced. And and by looking it up online. Yeah, looking it up online isn't the same as, as intelligent people going back and forth. I would say now that we're bringing it back to Gap Year, we've just been completed our uh, round of banquets, of the end-of-the-year banquets, or saying goodbye to students, and them writing our thank-you notes and things like that in different places. And I find it rare. I've been thinking about this a lot, like what do students say? 
very rarely do they talk about a particular fact that they learned from us in our class, even though our class is chock loaded full of facts. Usually they talk about how they've changed because of, informi- of the process, processing that they've gone through in, in, in the educational experience. Um, so that, that is what they will, will notice because that's really what, what the key to education is. The key to education is not having the information. It's how you process the information and what you do with that information, how, the, how you integrate that information into your identity. Yeah, I had the honor. I don't think a computer can help you do that today still. No, until you have genuine artificial intelligence, a computer is not uh, – humans are smarter than computers. They're not as fast at thinking as computers. As pr- they're not as fast as pure processing information as computers. But the human mind is still superior. It just is. It just is on anything that, that, that we think of as being human. I, I had the honor of being Nechama Leibovitz's student. And when I went to her class, she used to repeat to us over and over as a, as a group of teachers learning to, learning to become teachers – she said, your job as teachers isn't for your students to know information because they'll forget it. How much do you remember from what you learned in high school? Your primary job is for them. Five, eight, six, the temple was destroyed. I learned that in eighth grade, Steve Stroyman class. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> Why do you remember that? I have no idea, but I have always remembered it. How often was it repeated in class? No clue. I'd have to ask him. So, so she said, your first job is to teach them to love the material so that they will want to, through their lifetime, return to it. Exactly what the Israeli Bagrut system destroys, but that's another subject. The, the, the next priority is that they have skills so that when they re- because they love it and they want to return to it, they'll have the ability to process it. And then the third is there are certain basic facts that you have to repeat over and over and over again through the course that should be walked. There is such a thing as walking basic, walking around knowledge. Those things you have to repeat over and over and over until it sticks in their head and they don't know why. Like 586 BC is the first temple, 70 CC is the second. I used to tell that to my students. I'm going to repeat it over and you're going to remember it. I don't know if they remember it, but I tried. But that's, that to me is an educator who gets what the job of the educator is. Because, and, it's, and, 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 and these transformations that we're describing only make her more right with time. Because the information is at your fingertips. But do you have the, the love to engage in it? And do you have the skills to process and work with it? And I, I just don't see how there's ever going to be. Look, could be we're just trying to keep ourselves, jo- you know, having jobs. I don't think the teacher becomes obsolete. By the way, the discussion has to do with things that we've been talking about, how adapting our course, because we're a very informational-based course, and ha- how we should be, you know, dealing with that. Well, part of it is we, we, we feel, look, I think, here, here's what I think. I think our course has certain basic information, and we are constantly trying. I, this sounds bad, but I mean it well. We are constantly trying to, to boil down, distill the minimal information necessary so that we can spend more and more time talking about the big picture context and how things fit together. I mean, that's the whole idea of zooming out that we start the course with, the importance of zooming out, of understanding context. That's not just in the first class. That keeps on coming up. You know, these critical thinking skills that we're teaching keep on coming up. You know, how do you read the media with a grain of salt? Not just regarding uh, Israel. We want to teach them uh, bigger uh, skills that you can use in that they can use in their life. Yes, yeah, so I, I, I'm concerned that that, and this is something uh, obviously we're 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 working together and making a blog post about that. That very at this point, I think we think of the gap year as an Israel education 
because you're picking up all sorts of things that make you feel very deeply connected to Israel. And, and those pieces are, of course, very valuable, and it works. People feel connected to Israel. But we're not helping them enough process their own understanding and their own bigger perspectives of what all those little pieces mean. We're allowing them to have all these experiences in Israel so they love it and feel connected, but we're not giving them the time or space to... Or, or, and with them, processing what it means Israel in the 21st century. We're not giving them the intellectual framework to process their experience. Yeah. Um, and an intellectual framework means a lot of different, a lot of different aspects to it. It means, it means theory. It means the time to process, the time, the way to make connections between different things. How do you connect? What would that look like? You know, we're teaching them, for example, about the 1948 war, or about 50 years since the uh, Six-Day War. You're giving them information. Um, you're giving them inspiration. But what would that look like? This uh, uh, teaching to process uh, the world better? Uh, well, I think we do. I mean, I think we try in our course. That's what we're trying. We'll in our I literally think that's what we're trying every time we revise and revise. Our, we're trying to do it better and better. So I think there is, there is a certain base level of history, of understanding history that we talk about. Um, I think there's a certain base level understanding the ramifications of what happens. Um, and the main thing are the big discussions that come around it. What does it mean what does it mean to conquer land? What does it mean to have this population, you know, there and then we don't have peace? You know what I mean? It's really. What does it mean to be a nation? What does it mean to have a homeland? Right. What is what does it mean? What does it mean for two people to think their homeland is in the same place? What is that? What happens then? What does it mean to have a religion, to be a nation that has a religion? but still defines itself as a nation. These are very... And not everybody in the nation agrees on what that religion is, like the you know, core ideas of the religion, um, such as you know, whether mitzvot are commandments or, or suggestions, or whether they're just something that was old, or, or, or actually we need to get rid of the religion and create a whole new culture that's, uh, that's atheist and secular. Look, I, I, think, I think one place our course doesn't go enough, and it should, are big questions like, if it's a Jewish state, what should a Jewish state look like, in your opinion? Where can, and where can we agree upon where a Jewish state should be in the future, and how do we get it there? I think that's a Zionist conversation. Zionism isn't about just getting a state. It's about making that state, you know, the fully flourishing state that we want. Well, what state do we want? What should it, what should it be engaged in? So I think... They'll find that interesting as long as they see themselves as part of the process. You know, and I think some of our students do, but I think uh, many of them don't. They don't see themselves as part of the Zionist uh, story. And so as much as this conversation can be intellectually stimulating, if they don't see themselves, uh, you know, uh, actors, par- key players in this, uh, in making it happen, then they won't find it uh, exciting. And I think maybe that's also our role. I mean, I, I, I think that's the ultimate challenge. I think our challenge is to turn them from, they're walking in pro-Israel, but our challenge is that they should, they should undergo a paradigm shift, a transformational experience, that they, they are actors in the Zionist story. And, they, and that they're not coming to Disneyland for a year. Um, that's exactly, because... That's the ultimate question. And the biggest challenge that we have constantly, and we had that challenge 10 years ago, and we're going to have it 10 years from now, 
I would argue that Herzl had the same challenge and Ben-Gurion had the same challenge and everybody. That's, that's the challenge of a nation returning home. It's not so simple. You're, 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 you're telling members of the nation what you see around you is the way it is, not the way it should be. And that's hard for people to see. We're, we're asking you not to look, don't look at the world and say, why is it like this? Look at, look, think of what you want it to be and say, why not? How can I get it there? In other words, im tirzu enzo agada. Right. If you will it, it is no dream. Nicht kein Traum. That's what he really said. Uh, Herzl didn't speak Hebrew? Herzl didn't even think Israel would be speaking Hebrew. I think he thought the lingua franca of Israel would be German, didn't he? German or French, yeah. Yeah. There were the French wars in the early years of the Zionist movement of what language would be, and Hebrew eventually wins out, but there was Hebrew or French. But, but Herzl- well, there were schools here in Jerusalem where they were speaking German. Uh, and French, the and uh, Mikvi Israel French were the, the the basic wars came over the the um, what you call it in Haifa, the Technion. The Technion, right? What, what language? Because I mean, your text yeah. your textbooks are not going to be in Hebrew. That means you have to rewrite all the textbooks. So uh, it was a big army it should be in French and, and, and German French and then. and Eliezer ben basically said, "Well, I'll win this battle." And uh, why would you think he would possibly win that battle? And he won that battle because the Zionist is. Like being a Jew, you have to be a, a bit mashuga. Ben Gurion said, "To be a realist in Israel, you have to believe in miracles." Maybe that's what we have to teach them. We have to teach them to be a bit mashuga, be a bit crazy. I think I think we're excellent examples of crazy, mentally imbalanced people. And and you're 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 a hundred. I agree with you one hundred percent that the challenge we have is to activate the, the our students to be to see themselves as actors in the Zionist story. And that is, that is a challenge, but that's the challenge. challenge. Number one challenge, that's the transformation you want to have in the classroom. And it's rare that you see it, but when you see it, that's the real thing. And I would argue, if we go back to our original question, what's, you know, Zev's talking about, what's education going to look like in 10 years? Those are all the, 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 the tools or the techniques or technicals we're talking about. Internet and phones and, you know... Uh, but, but the real core is really not going to change exactly what you said. That the- well, to, be, to put an optimistic spin towards the end of the episode, our problem is people feeling far away and disconnected so they don't feel it's their story. In a world with increased connectivity, our job could get easier and easier. Just like when they're here, they bring the States with them or, or England with them or Australia or South Africa with them. When they go home, they bring Israel with them also. And that's why we have this podcast on our website. <laughs> oh, and once again, we've saved the world. Boy, we're so awesome. We're so Meshuggah. So that's why we're awesome. Well. Sorry, just one more thing. First of all, is it Oman Focaccia? Okay. Uh, yeah, but I think when you're talking about Herzl or whomever, like it, it wasn't their state it was our state and what are we going to do and how are we going to make it but I feel like when kids come for a gap year it's about you know they they are not the Israelis they are the Americans and all oh, these Israelis are this and these Israelis are that and it's a very cultural um, difference that I think is another reason why they don't take ownership we need to, you're saying we need to turn them into the Israelis they need yeah, they to have see themselves as the other yeah. this is your homeland you are home this is yours I took a group of people who, who a, a group of students, most of whom were not Orthodox, and, and I took them to the Kotel, and it happened to be at that moment at the Kotel. It's often times, depending on what time of day you show up, you see like, like Hasidim and people in the garb with us, and I could see on their faces they felt 
other. And I turned to them, I said, you're all going to walk up now to the koto. None of you should think that you're other. It is absolutely as much yours as theirs. There's nobody here who has more of a place and a connection than you. And you're right, but what Dara's saying is there's an instinctual, and just to reinforce them, that's a nice thing, but the truth is that there's an instinctive feeling of other and that Israel's for the Israelis and I'm a, I'm a guest. We can learn from uh, from Darren from the school that you teach in. You have a, there's a very high percentage of uh, girls, seminary girls, that decide to stay because they've had that transformation because they start seeing themselves as Israeli. And I don't know if you have the answer, but something happens during that year, and that's transformation, where they realize, okay, it's not someone else, it's me. And I'm going to be part of the story. Do you, do you have any clue as to what that might be? I'm not totally sure. I feel like a lot of it is really a very coherent message from the faculty that the faculty don't feel like other to them because they're part of one community, but the faculty also are Israeli, even if we don't all have Israeli accents, etc. So I think that to some extent bridges that gap. Okay, well now that's another answer to your question, what's the role of the teacher? It's a bridge between worlds. A teacher stands between two worlds and welcomes you in. Takes your takes you, gives you a hand. The teacher your teachers reached a certain point and they give their hand and say, "Come, come join me here." To be that change you want to see in the world. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. Boy, we all love our job. We sound so happy about it being educators. Meanwhile, we're all exhausted and looking forward to the summer, <laughs> which is also true. Um, so we're going to have, uh, we, of course, will continue episodes throughout the summer, God willing. And we may miss a week or two here or there, but we're going to try to keep basically. We know that people are going to be away doing different things. College also is finished, so a lot of our alumni are off doing different things. But for those who, you know... Even if the numbers drop, we still hope that you keep in touch. You let us know. You, you connect with us. Give us your feedback. Give us your ideas for episodes. We are here for you, as always. That's the, uh, that's the best part of being a teacher. So thank you so much, Alan. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Zeph. Thank you. Thank you, Dara. You're welcome. That was the correct response, and Dara wins uh, a home version of the game, Jivy Bob Popcorn and Turtle Wax. That's an old man joke. Uh, thank you so much, everybody. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teachers Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ju Israel Gap. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions. And if you know somebody who would enjoy our podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.